0: I think this morning, I mean, I said, I was mentioning you were in culturality uh, for eight years, and then I probably didn't mention the fact that you've actually gone back to the state. So where are you, where are you from originally? Um, yeah. So. so from right near New Orleans, um, there's a
1: big lake right on the north of the city, and uh, I'm on the north side of that lake. So real close, deep south, Louisiana, near New Orleans.
0: Yeah. And how did you come, come to faith yourself? Were you was it from a young age, or were you... Yeah. Uh, I
1: grew up in a, in a family. I was, my parents separated when I was very young. Uh, my father was not a practicing Christian at the time. My mother was. And really my earliest memories are um, of at the time we didn't have much. And my mom praying for very tangible needs and seeing those prayers answered. And so growing up with an awareness of there being um, a God who I really felt was a father to us. And that was a foundation. And as I grew up, I learned a lot more about my own heart, um, about my own sin and my need of a savior. And I'd say, you know, toward the end of high school, um, I really think for the first time, I began to appreciate God's holiness. Um, Such that by the end of high school, I was looking for a place to take a year and study the Bible. And of all the places, I ended up in Dingwall, Scotland, at Highland Theological College. So that was my first landing in Scotland.
0: And so that was the connection with the cultality church at that point? or was that No,
1: not, not at all. Um, okay. uh, I was telling some people at lunch today this. It, I, I've got a funny history in that there's kind of three times uh, the Lord has kind of put Scotland on the map for me. When I was a teenager, my mom used to always give me useless gifts for my birthday. And so she would buy me, um, I always remember the lamp she gave me, I think when I was 15 or 16, and being totally unimpressed. And then one year she gave me a wooden cabinet and she said, it's from a very special place called the Black Isle of Scotland. One day you'll appreciate it. And uh, two years later, I was in Dingwall and I discovered the Black Isle right across the Firth there. Um, but I actually left and went uh, to uni in the States, um, did some different things, and then through a different set of circumstances, ended up back right near the Black Isle. <laughs> so yeah. it's Kiltarly. Um So it was actually an entirely separate route that led me back to real close to Dingwall.
0: Yeah. And so when you were Kiltaralty, you weren't... Uh, well, you, you pretty much were like a full-time minister, but were you more of a, a missionary worker? How would you yeah. describe yourself when you were... Uh, well, when, when I
1: began at Kiltarlady, um, I was not yet ordained. In fact, um, what I was told, I was at St. Andrews, and uh, Alistair I, some of you may know, I was asking him if there any opportunities to preach, and one Sunday he came up to me and said, phone Kiltarlady, they're desperate, they'll take anybody. <laughs> and that was just what I needed to hear. So I started kind of like a missionary worker. And then over the years, uh, as the congregation grew um, and support grew I was able to stay eventually, it led to me being ordained and actually the minister there.
0: Correct. So. And so now you were there for eight years. Yeah. And then you moved back to the mm-hmm. States. And what are you involved in now back in the States? So right now
1: uh, I've got a uh, ministry, a men's discipleship ministry called Cross Training Ministries. Um, everywhere I've been, when you look into churches, it's amazing how much women are doing. They're always serving the community, they're praying together, they're doing Bible studies, they're meeting together for fellowship, and then you look at the men, and typically they maybe have a curry night, and that's about as deep as it gets. Um, and it's true everywhere. So, uh, in this space, it's been an opportunity to work with churches, helping them develop discipleship ministries, working with groups of men. Um, I'm over here because I still work with quite a few men in Scotland, and so doing some things here as well, but really focused on helping guys in the midst of such a confusing uh, time and culture and historic situation figure out how do you really develop and mature into a
0: man of God. Yeah, yeah. So. And if there's a couple of things you'd like us to pray for, what would they, what would they be?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I've already almost been detained crossing the border and had a car breakdown, so (laughs) just that I can travel smoothly from here. Uh, But otherwise, um, there is uh, a a ministry venture I've been doing. Um, It's a spiritual decathlon with 10 different challenges, one a month. And uh, it's something that people could sign up online. And what amazed me were the number of guys in Scotland. So about 130 guys signed up from Scotland to do this. Right. So it's the sort of thing that's really great when you actually get to meet with a guy. So one of the things about this trip is I'm getting to, to see some of these guys up in Inverness. I'll do a Saturday event with uh, some of these guys as well. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a group of guys in Scotland who are involved, many of them in, 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 you know, rural or in church situations where they don't have a lot of support. Yeah. So I, I just really want to see those guys nudged forward in their faith.
0: Yeah. So, for those men. Great. Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks. Good to have you with us, Joe. I'm going to ask Thanos to come up and pray for you and, and other things. Yeah. Thanos.
1: If you have a Bible, we'll do two readings. First, from Colossians chapter 1. You'll find this page 1182. In the church Bibles, read chapter 1, verse 15, down to verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood, his blood shed on the cross. If you flip your Bible just one page before to Philippians chapter four, read verse eight and verse nine. Finally, brothers, brothers, Father, we recognize that left to ourselves tonight, we are as blind as Bartimaeus and that we cannot see the light of your word. We ask you to open our eyes, to clear our ears, to soften our heart, that you would inscribe this word indelibly on the tablet of our heart, that we would know its truth. and As Paul says, put it into practice. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world where nobody is willing to think anymore. There's a novel that G.K. Chesterton wrote called The Ball in the Cross. It's a remarkable little novel, and there are two main characters in it. One character is an atheist journalist who has a shop on a busy thoroughfare in London. And every day what he does is try to write the eye-grabbing headlines, things like, God is dead. There's no such thing as morality, hoping that somebody will see it and be stirred into thinking. Now, the other main character is a Highlander, who's a Catholic, who's never been to a city before, and he goes down into London, and he happens to be the very first person to ever pause and look at what's written in the store front window, and so he does the honorable thing. He takes a brick, throws it through the window, and challenges the man to a duel to the death, and so the rest of the book is these two men trying to find a place where they can have a duel, only to find out at the end that they actually share something strangely in common. Remember, this was written 100 years ago almost. That they are the last two men in the United Kingdom that still care enough about the truth to argue about it, to think about it. And that was generations ago. We're even lazier today. We don't want to think. We don't see the need to think. And truth be told, a lot of us think that if you think too much, it's a little bit dangerous. And so it's to people like us that we need to look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, do what? Think about these things. And here's my first point tonight. I want you to know that thinking matters. And I want to give you four different reasons why thinking is so important for Christians. Here's one. If you don't use your mind, someone else is going to use you. There's another old book. You've maybe seen the movie, The Time Machine, written by H.G. Wells. In this book, there's the scientist, and he invents a time machine, and he wants to go to the very edge of the future to find out where is all of human ingenuity, all of our intelligence, all of our technological progress, where will it lead? And he goes way into the future, and he finds that the human race is evolved into two species, the Eloi and the uh, Morlocks. And the Eloi are a people that just sit around amusing themselves endlessly, eating, playing, sitting beside the river, not realizing that they are actually being domesticated as food for the Morlocks. Now, I'm not going to tell you tonight that if you don't use your mind, you're going to end up on somebody's kitchen table. But I will tell you that if you don't use your mind, someone will use you. That part of becoming a Christian, it's an act of revolt whereby we stop thinking according to the categories of the world and we begin to allow God's word to inform our thinking. What does Paul say in Romans 12, two, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern the will of God. It's our call to not conform by thinking. Here's another reason that thinking is so important. Thought leads to more than action. I deal with a lot of men. There's a lot of guys out there that like to say things like, you know, I'm just not a thinker. I'm a doer. I care about getting stuff done. Here's the problem if you don't think, your options for action are narrowed. If you never think, it's almost as if you live out in a rural setting where there's one road that goes back and forth and that's it. But as you think, it's as if other roads are built so that all of a sudden you can go in different directions, you can do different things. Where does great action come from? It comes from great thought. So you look at someone like William Carey, William Carey, the father of modern missions, the man who translated the Bible into over 25 different languages. Where did all that activity come from? A thought. Way back early in his life, where he was still a cobbler fixing shoes, a teacher instructing children looking at a globe, looking at a map, and saying the Great Commission was not just given to reach some of the world, but to make disciples of all nations, thinking that even after 16, 1,700 years, There were people that didn't know that Jesus Christ had died for sin and resurrected to grant people who trusted in him eternal life. And it's that thought that drove him to such profound action. Here's another reason: guys, focused thinking breeds love. The more you set your attention on something, the deeper the love you have for that will be. Why do guys love football so much? They think about it all the time. Why do people get obsessive about their appearance? Well, they're looking at magazines. They're looking in the mirror. They're doing themselves up. They're fixing their attention constantly on their appearance. If you understand, want to understand the relationship between your head and your heart, imagine that we were to build a gigantic mountain, an artificial mountain that reached way up into the sky. Friends, as the rain fell on this mountain, what would begin to happen? As the water trickled down, you'd get little rivulets. And as the rain kept pouring, what would happen? is those would become gullies and ditches and streams. And as the rain kept coming, eventually you would have torrents and rivers flowing down this artificial mountain. What happens when you set your mind on something is it creates trenches of desire, trenches of affection. So all of a the sudden there's a drift feed from your thinking to your heart. And so what you set your mind on becomes the thing that you end up caring most about. This is why old Christians talked about a practice that's almost altogether been forgotten today meditation. The great old Christian Thomas Brooks, he says, It's not he who reads most, but he who meditates most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. John Owen, another great old Christian, said, If we desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest, peace, and satisfaction... We must seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ. Fixing our attention on an object worthy of it. Here's a fourth reason thinking is so important. The mind is a hugely significant way in which we connect with God. Tozer... He was making a profound point when he said the most important thing about a person is what comes to their mind when they hear the word God. Because how you relate with God is determined by how you conceive God. If you understand him wrongly, you will relate with him wrongly. How did Jesus define eternal life in John 17? This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know you. I want to just clench this nail at the start. Thinking matters. You've got the point. So let's move on to a second point. As Christians, what we need to know is that the modern world is designed to disarm our ability to think in multiple ways. First of all, it's designed to divert your thinking. You have to realize that there is a resource that the wealthiest and most powerful corporations of this world, they covet it as much as they covet petroleum, as much as they covet lithium, cobalt, any mineral. Do you know what that resource is? It's your attention. We live in an attention economy. And do not be naive that the phone you carry in your pocket is designed to be addictive and to constantly distract you with pings and vibrations so that you cannot fix your mind on anything of substance. Our thinking is diverted, but our thinking is also deactivated. We're becoming lazier and unwilling to think. You heard a moment ago, so right now I've got a men's discipleship ministry. I've launched this decathlon where guys are challenged over 10 months to do 10 different activities, getting a taste of the kind of things that promote spiritual growth. Now the very first challenge was to memorize that great classic hymn, When I Survey, by Isaac Watts. And as soon as the challenge went out, do you know what guys were doing? They were kicking against it, and they were saying, you know, this is hard. These words are old-fashioned. I'm struggling to understand the meaning. And as I'm listening to this, do you know what I'm thinking about? Friends, do you know who one of the most appreciative audience audiences of Isaac Watts' hymns were? They were the African slaves that had been brought to what has become the United States. So you're telling me that people who were learning English as a second language with no leisure, working in the fields all day, that they were able to grasp these truths and now you have men in almost all cases who graduated not just from high school but from college and university and they're unable? No. No they're unwilling to open a dictionary and look up a word. But guys, it's even worse. If you walk up the street, there's a pub called George Orwell. I think it's a pub. He wrote a book called 1984. And in this book, he talked about something called double think. Double think is the ability to hold two contradictory beliefs simultaneously and accept both of them. Guys, this is so prevalent among Christians. How often do you hear a young Christian say two things about their heart? On the one hand, they believe what the world has told them, that they have to follow their heart, that their heart is an oracle that leads them and enables them to discern what their true route to fulfillment is in this life. The Bible then also tells them that their heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Do you see the contradiction? It cannot be both. Your heart cannot be an infallible oracle in a seedbed of deceit. But does that bother the young millennial Christian? No, not at all. They flip-flop between the two. We've got to realize this is the environment in which we live. And so what we need to realize, and here I'm coming up on my third point, and this drives us right into this verse in Philippians 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 8, that as Christians, what we have to see is that we have a spiritual duty to think. And what I love about this verse is Paul tells us how we are to think, That first of all, we are to think rigorously. Now, where does this come from? You see that word when he says to think about these things, the word that he uses, it has the sense of calculate, reckon, do the math. Don't just accept what someone else has said. You own the truth yourself. Kierkegaard a long time ago. He said something about people in his age, and I think it's true of Christians today. This is what he said. There are many people who reach their conclusions about life like schoolboys. They cheat their master by copying the answers out of a book without having worked out the sum for themselves. Is that not so easy to do? You hear a profound sermon on the sovereignty of God. He understands it. You assent to it. But you don't really know the truth yourself. You do a Bible study that's so watered down that you're filling in blanks like you're a child, right? You walk away and the truth, you've not really distilled it. You've not chewed on it. It's not been digested and assimilated into you. Paul's saying, that's not the kind of thinking. Set your mind. The New King James, the Old King James, meditate on these things. Until you're not just copying someone else's answers. Yeah, God's sovereign. Yeah, God's holy. Yeah, God's infinite. But I don't really know what any of these things mean. But rather you become to enter into that place where you know my God is holy. My God is sovereign. My God is righteous. And your life begins to be built on these truths. Because you know them. You've studied them. You've meditated on them. You've acted upon them. That's the kind of thinking that Paul is pushing us to do. Think rigorously, but secondly, he's telling us in this verse to think specifically. I love this verse because Paul actually gives us criteria for what we are to think about. But what I love about what he does is he doesn't set a narrow fence, but he gives us great breadth for what we can think about. I can think of old, uh, wonderful Christians in the highlands who, you know, growing up on the Sabbath, the only thing they could read was the Bible or Pilgrim's Progress. So they snuck literature, you know, behind the cover of Pilgrim's Progress. So they were reading something really seedy like Jane Austen. You know, just covering it with a cover of Pilgrim's Progress. You know, I can think of people in America today, some of you may know that there's not just Netflix, there's Pure So you can watch, you know, what's marketed as overtly Christian entertainment all the time. Notice that's not what Paul says. He gives us criteria. He says, whatever is true, whatever is true, if it's legitimately true, then you can set your mind on it. That reminds me of that great quote, I don't remember if it was Chesterton or Lewis, but said, you know why every child needs to read the Iliad? Because life is a battle. You know why every child needs to read the Odyssey? Because life is a journey. You can look at St. Augustine of old. He described that just as the Israelites, when they left Egypt, they plundered them and took their wealth as their own. Paul's telling us, if there's anything true, legitimately true, set your mind on it. If there's anything noble, there's anything worthy of setting your mind that causes you to expand your thinking your value that's truly noble set your mind on it you know just recently i was reading a biography of one of the great american heroes teddy roosevelt Now, Teddy Roosevelt, he's not someone who was a great Christian, but every time I read a part of his life, I come out a little bit more courageous, a little bit better. And I was reading this biography, and I came across this story where when Teddy Roosevelt, he was a new student at Harvard University, and he went into the gymnasium, the workout room, and they had these parallel bars. And Teddy Roosevelt was a small man, and he was doing his workout on these parallel ba- bars, and another guy who was very big, who became Teddy Roosevelt's friend, he made the comment that he knew that Teddy Roosevelt must be a humble man because he was willing to do such an effeminate workout in public. And as I read that, I thought, you know, there's something noble there. There's something wonderful about a man who can go into that kind of environment and say, you know what, I'm not doing this to look good in the mirror. I'm not doing this to impress everyone around me. I'm going to do what I can do and be content with that. And I can extract something from that that is noble and of spiritual value and applied into my circumstances. That, yes, God's not called me to live before the audience of this world. I can get on with what he's given me to do. And that's enough. Whatever is noble Paul says, whatever is right or whatever is just. And you know, justice has that sense of proportion, even that sense of beauty. If there's anything truly beautiful, lovely, as he says, that has really true, accurate proportions, set your mind on these things. Just a few weeks ago, it was strawberry season in Louisiana. And somebody dropped off a big vat of these huge strawberries at my house. And I picked up the biggest one and I turned to my daughter who's six, she's seven today and I said, Ailey, there is all the evidence you will ever need in this single strawberry that there's a God. Look at its shape. Look at its color. Look at the detail. You could go into the Louvre in Paris. You could go to the center and take the most exquisite vase and remove it and just set this one strawberry. Strawberry. Because you're never going to see a more beautiful or just or lovely piece of art than this. Paul says if there's anything pure, you know, why ought we to meditate on the word of God? Because where else will we find things that are undefiled? Put your mind on it. If there's anything of good repute, put your mind on it. If there's anything excellent, worthy of praise, put your mind on it. I would imagine that you probably heard something about Tiger Woods and the Masters, you know, a month ago or two months ago. It was everywhere in the States. It was totally overblown. The greatest comeback, you know, in sports history. But there was something about the excellence of his dogged pursuit of excellence that was worthy of Christian contemplation. That through thinking about it, you could very easily be led to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, where Paul says, you know that in a race, all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. They do it for, an Im- for a perishable crown. We do it for an imperishable one. Therefore, he says, they're temperate in all things. And as you look and as you see that kind of excellence displayed, even on a golf course, You can learn something to extract, to feed your soul along this journey of faith. Think rigorously. Think specifically within the categories that Paul outlines. But I would also tell you to think Christologically. That if you learn the grammar of God's revelation, then ultimately everything good and everything true and everything lovely and everything noble and everything pure and everything excellent will ultimately lift your mind to think about Christ himself. And so what you really want to end up knowing how to do is not simply to think of anything that is true, but to think about how Jesus is true. To not just think of something that is noble, but to think of the nobility of Jesus. To not just find and search for things that are just or pure, but to discern the justice, the purity of Christ's life, how every word he frames, every action he pursues is perfect and excellent and worthy of our highest praise. And friends, when you learn that art, all of a sudden the whole of creation begins to be a kind of symphony that leads you into worship. Thomas Watson, a long time ago, he described creation as the heathen man's Bible, the plowman's primer, and I love that image of a farmer plowing his field. Only as this farmer plows his field, he's not calculating how much he's going to grow and how much money he's going to make. He's looking at the amphitheater of God's glory, and his heart is welling up with praise. Praise. Isaac Watts wrote a wonderful hymn. He said, Lord, how thy wonders are displayed where'er I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky, there's not a f- plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. The clouds arise, the tempest blow by order From thy throne. Did you hear what he said? There's not a plant or flower below but makes thy glory known. Friends, that's where you want to get. To where every little daisy in the field reminds you of the loveliness of your maker. Now, how do we begin to even get to this place where we think on these things? Let me just give you some spiritual advice. The first thing I would say to people living in the 21st century is that we need to reappraise the value of our minds. Do you know what the Aztecs called gold? They called it the excrement of the gods. And they were happy to hand it off to people that ended up plundering them. And there's a parable of that for what we are doing in the 21st century with our mind. We are handing off our attention as if it's just a spare change that has no value, not realizing that this is being used to conform us to the world so that rather than being lights in the darkness, we're barely burning ourselves. Reappraise the value of your mind. Friends, I would encourage you to audit your attention, to think about where does your mind focus through the day? How much attention do you give to your appearance? How often do you think about your health? Are you constantly checking the headlines for the football news in the scores? Does home improvement or even your children, or the headlines, or celebrities? Is this the total investment of your attention? Because Paul is telling us to think on better things. And I would push you that direction of thinking about how you now can make better choices. Isn't it amazing that we live in a time where when you are in the car, you don't have to listen to what's ever on the radio? You can have a podcast. You can bring John Piper and sit him in your passenger seat and hear what he has to say. Is that not amazing? You can take the richest of books and you can listen to it whenever you're driving. Friends, we live in a time where when you, you never have to be bored while you're waiting, whether you're in the doctor's office or the checkout line at Tesco. Let me encourage you on your phone to get that old topical memory system put out by the navigators generations ago so that when you're sitting there and have nothing to do, rather than look at, you know, the gaudy covers of secular magazines, you can pull out and you can think about a verse. Friends, when you are with each other, spend a little time talking about what's going on in the world, But also take time to share what Christ is teaching you. What has lifted your mind to think on his loveliness. Share that with someone else. Like Christian and hopeful in Pilgrim's Progress, seek profitable conversation. On the couch, before you fall asleep, in the gym, make good choices. And friends, I'll leave you with the encouragement to think on Christ himself. John Owen, in his great book on the glory of Christ, he says the greatest privilege the believer has in this world and for eternity is to behold the glories of Christ. And friends, if you're not yet enthralled by his glory, well, you're probably not very eager about heaven. Because in heaven, the anthem is going to be nonstop as we gaze and as we gaze and as we behold the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And friends, the reason I did this other reading is if some of you don't know where to begin. Let me just encourage you to this week, think about Colossians 1, verse 15 to verse 20. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. If that didn't give you something to chew on, I don't know what to offer you. And so friends, let's just pray that it becomes true on us, not just that we have to dutifully turn our attention but rather as that wonderful old hymn, When I Survey, that we would see something so wondrous about the cross that we wouldn't be able to shift our eyes to any lesser object. Let's pray. Jesus, what a wonder that we are able to behold the glory of God reflected through your face. That you have walked and that as we read the Gospels we read about God in flesh. And every word is perfect. Every gesture could not be improved upon. And it all leads us to that place of such mystery. The cross where we discover our true condition, but we also discover your true nature. Yes, the fearful justice that cannot look away and not condemn sin but also the unanticipated love that would come and for creatures such as us bear our guilt away that we could share fellowship with you not just for a year or for a season, but forever. Give us tastes of your goodness so that we can be weaned off this world and so we can walk through this world wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.